0: Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial Show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for 2 dollars a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for 2 dollars a month or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl, like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now, too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash Queer History Uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series, and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar, and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says, Gay Love Always, straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say, Queer History is World History. Other stickers that say, Drag is Not a Crime, with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy, too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series, episode by episode, with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history. And a spinoff of an event that I briefly touched on in season three, episode seven, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. This podcast includes text from real homophile era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show contains identifying terms that may now be out of date.
1: Perhaps he is a fool and a coward, but almost everybody is one or the other, and most people are both. James Baldwin, Giovanni's Room.
0: The homophile literature promoted in the Mattachine Review reaches all corners of the country. In a Florida prison, a young man finds solace in Quatrefoil, a novel by James Barr. Mattachine has also promoted that writers play the aptly named Games of Fools. 1950's Quatrefoil breaks the traditional gay novel's ending by allowing the homosexual lead character not to die by suicide or murder at the end. Instead, it's a plane crash. Nevertheless, Albert Ross Perrier loves the story from his prison cell so much that he contacts the novel's author. Through correspondence, the author, James Barr, is charmed. He arranges for Perrier's debts to be cleared, charges to be dropped, and sends him to New York City. James gives the young man the full My Fair Lady treatment. He teaches him how to dress, how to act, and gives him clothes and cash. Ross Perrier meets the new Mattachine leaders of New York's first chapter, Sam, Joe, and Tony. The author also connects year with the Mattachine Review offices in San Francisco so he can tell his story
2: about the brutal prison camps that dot many of the southern states where, once committed, the homosexual must live out his sentence without one friend to whom he can turn in his desolation. No one person to whom he can appeal for justice against the wrongs he suffers.
0: Despite James Barr's hopes, Ross Perrier is less his lover than his project. Perrier becomes an established young man in the Mattachine fold, and even while on a trip with the author James to Kansas, Ross is responding to letters from Mattachine New York leader Tony Segura. Tony is urging him to return to New York. James Barr isn't aware that the Mattachine leader is writing to Perrier because he misses his new lover. Ross Perrier decides it's time to ditch the author in Kansas. Just days before the author plans to visit New York City, he wakes to find Ross Perrier gone. James's clothes, his cash, jewelry, his partially finished upcoming novel, and his car are all gone too. Ross Perrier hits the road, and the National Mattachine Society begins its final unraveling previously. Once
2: the debt has gotten beyond the society's ability to liquidate it, it
0: will have lost the magazine to Pan Graphic Press. He can keep it away from the board of the Mattachine and promote his own
2: homophile message. I don't see where it gives us any valuable standing to salute a drag queen. That's just the plain, unvarnished truth. What you and your vehicle of expression will become is up to your collective wisdom. Effective, or powerless, a guide or a pawn.
0: He wants to publish 12 issues per year instead of six, but
2: half of those will be printed privately. Mrs. Branson, why do you prefer owning a homosexual bar?
1: Probably two or three
3: reasons all in one. Already with only one issue of the latter published.
1: How can any of us be absolutely sure that our names are safe? They could have been a society for raising cats.
3: What kind of
2: women
1: are you?
0: This is the serialized story of queer liberation in America from day one to Stonewall. I'm Devlin Camp. Ross Perrier writes to Tony in New York. He's driving to California, Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, Idaho, Utah, Nevada, Oregon. When James Barr finds out Tony is in contact with Perrier, James starts sending money through Tony and covering over $5,000 worth of his own checks bounced by Perrier. Tony says he's forwarding the letters from James too, but James soon believes Tony is telling Perrier to keep running and avoid the author's revenge. The games of fools drag on. Until three months later, January 1957, word spreads through Mattachine's grapevine. A car crash has killed Ross Perrier. James is devastated. In San Francisco, Hal Call types up an obituary for the Mattachine's private quarterly publication, Interim, mourning the loss of the young writer. Tony Segura is left without his lover. James Barr is left without his lover, his car, his cash, and his book. Mattachinos buzz the door at Hal's apartment and join him in assembling the interim issue containing the obituary. Paste-ups, plates, folding, stapling, trimming, envelopes, sealing, addressing, stamping, and soon-to-be-mailed, over and over. The buzzer goes off again, and Hal heads to answer it. A draft whips through the apartment as the door opens. A nice suit, a tweed overcoat, and a room key for the nearby hotel in hand. Hal is stunned to see him there. Ross Perrier, back from the dead. Hal invites him in to read his own obituary. The plates are quickly blocked out, and the pages reprinted. After the interim issue is remade, Hal takes Purrier to the Copper Lantern in North Beach to celebrate with drinks. He hears the whole tale. James Barr's possible affair with another man in the Kansas oil fields, the fight, the disappearance. When Purrier returned to Kansas for the Henry Higgins to his Eliza Doolittle, James Barr's family, who knew of the financial wreckage done, Convinced Perrier to leave Kansas, and then they told James that Perrier died in a car crash. Hal is stunned by the tale, and he will later say he too was.
2: Spelled by his grace. Sincere, talented, intelligent, and a fine type of person in all respects.
0: Perrier would even make a great Mattachine chairman, Hal says. Hal's longtime lover Jack has just moved out in one of their many fights, so Hal invites Perrier to stay. Ross settles in as Hal travels to Nevada for work. And when Hal returns, of course, his apartment is cleaned out. LPs, brandy and gin, stacks of checks that will be forged. A half-eaten plate of beans covered in ketchup sits on the kitchen table beside an empty carton of cigarettes. The stolen records are sent to James' Barr as a gift. James takes to the New York Mattachine podium, telling the whole sordid story. But Tony turns and spreads his version, that James is a liar and Purrier is the victim. The author is furious to see his reputation falling apart in the homophile community. The New York members begin pointing fingers at each other. Tony, Joe, and Sam barely have control of their new chapter. Hal in San Francisco asks James Barr to drop the matter and forget the debt. James writes to Hal.
2: Perhaps per year will believe at last that I do love him, that I was faithful to him all the time he was in Kansas, that I did not see one of the eight men in the oil fields with whom I had once been intimate before his arrival out there. Perhaps he will believe me now when I say that I will give up everything, even my life, to make him happy. I shall live alone then, and from then on, until Ross is able to join me.
0: Hal also says he won't be pursuing per year with the police. He writes to Tony.
2: Just as I was so impressed initially by Ross, a sinister, calculating, criminal person. Tony, let me tell you kindly and in friendliness that you are wrong. Completely, deludedly, and absolutely wrong. We were all graced by his spell.
0: Tony won't hear it. To Sam Morford, one of the other New York leaders, Hal writes...
2: I see signs of a schism in New York.
0: He's correct. Sam quits. James Barr is done with Mattachine, too. He furiously writes to Hal...
2: In consideration of the serious injuries and humiliation suffered recently at the hands of some of your people here in New York, I'm forced to ask you to remove my name from your mailing list. From this date forward you no longer have my permission to use my name or my works in any manner. The San Francisco police were as glad as anyone that the case against Ross is now closed. I hope that one day you'll see this whole thing unemotionally. Surely then you will realize your error in wildly blaming everyone except the person who caused his own reincarceration.
0: From the beginning of New York's first Mattachine chapter, they're on bad terms with San Francisco. Hal blames Tony, Tony points at James, With Sam out and Tony at the head of New York, Hal stops responding to letters. Joe in New York writes to Hal that Tony will quit too, and Mattachine here in Manhattan will fall apart unless he hears from you. Hal finally responds to Tony.
2: I know it's frustrating, and your blood pressure soars when you want and need something, and it seems you can't break through our shell. So let's forget this do-it-or-else business. Everyone here is working as hard as human endurance permits.
0: As the homophile men turn on one another, the women face new challenges too. The January 1957 issue of The latter hits newsstands, and lesbians all over the country are shocked to see the headline announcing their editor's death.
3: Anne Ferguson is dead,
0: the headline says. The pen name of Daughters of Belita's co-founder, Phyllis Lyon. The obituary begins.
3: I confess, I killed Anne Ferguson, premeditatedly and with malice afterthought. We ran an article in the November issue of The latter entitled, Your Name is Safe. Anne Ferguson wrote that article. Her words were true, her conclusions logical and documented. Yet she was not practicing what she preached. At the December public discussion meeting of the Daughters of Belitis, we got up, Anne Ferguson and I, and did away with Anne. Now, there is only Phyllis Lyon.
0: Phyllis boldly brings the daughters of Belitis into a rarely visited territory of homophile activism. No masks, no pseudonyms, and it's a success. Letters continue to flow in, asking for more DOB chapters. Phyllis and Dell set their sights on LA. In one magazine, the daughters print an ad for a $1 brunch for potential daughters to meet at the Clark Hotel during one's midwinter meeting. Monitoring one magazine since its beginning, the FBI looks into the Clark Hotel reservations listed in the ad. They find the lesbians will be gathering with Del Martin. They're reserved as a tour group. The FBI scours their files for more on Del and these daughters of Belitis. They turn up a book recently published by One, Homosexuals Today. They send word of Del Martin to director Hoover. But there's not much Hoover can do here but watch people exercise their rights. Meanwhile, in L.A., Dell and Phil host their brunch of 16 women. One Incorporated member, Stella Rush, decides to head up the new chapter. Dell and Phil ask Helen Sandoz, who secretly printed their magazine at Macy's, to stick around and help Stella establish the L.A. chapter. The two women continue meeting at the bar of the hotel where they hold DOB meetings. And soon after, Helen moves to L.A. to be with Stella. Stella Rush actually has a fascinating story. Check out my bonus episode on her at patreon.com slash serial. At the Midwinter Institute meeting hosted by one, a folklore specialist from L.A. takes the stage to sketch the history of homophile life from the dawn of history to present time. It's Harry Hay, quietly working in the background now, promoting the importance of queer history. We've been here all along, falling in love and often running from enemies. Some of them are even here with us now. An informant inside the Mattachine reports to the FBI that headquarters have moved to San Francisco to expand activities of the male and female queer sections because of the sanctuary here in San Francisco as a a bohemian city. The informant plans to send a list of members as the organizations rapidly expand. Why a chapter in your area? Only
2: so much can be accomplished by the printed word. There must also be the spoken word, the personal contact. The therapy of group discussion of mutual problems, of talking it over with those in similar circumstances, cannot be denied.
0: But some women can't talk it over in person. They have reputations to uphold. In April of 1957, Dell and Phyllis receive a discreet message from LHN.
3: Please find and close a money order for $2.00. I should like to receive as many of your back issues as that amount will cover. In the event $2 is in excess of the past six issues, well, fine. Those few cents may stand as a mere down payment towards sizable, for me that is, donations. I know already that I shall be sending you.
0: One day, everyone will know the author's name, but not because of her letters to the daughters. Her play, A Raisin in the Sun, will soon be the first play written by a woman of color, produced on Broadway. Lorraine Hansberry currently lives in Greenwich Village, quietly separated from her husband, Robert Nemiroff.
3: I'm glad as heck that you exist. You're obviously serious people, and I feel that women, without wishing to foster any strict separatist notions, homo or hetero, indeed have a need for their own publications and organizations. As one raised in a cultural experience, I am a Negro, where those within were and are forever lecturing to their fellows about how to appear acceptable to the dominant social group. I know something about the shallowness one is oppressed or discriminated against because one is different, not wrong or bad somehow.
0: On undated sheets of yellow legal paper, Hansberry writes radical thoughts of how homosexuals are born homosexual.
3: Since it does not follow that all which proceeds from nature is in any way automatically desirable for human good, it is silly and baseless to posit the rights of homosexuality on the remote, plus in some sense irrelevant, possibility of its possible congenital character.
0: Annually, she writes lists of her likes, dislikes, loves, and regrets.
3: Myself in notes, likes, slacks, deeply intelligent women, Eartha Kids eyes, voice, legs, music, Dislikes, loneliness, most sexual experiences, myself, masculinity in women, bored with a raisin in the sun, indifferent to most men, I like my homosexuality, I hate my homosexuality, I like 69 when it really works, the inside of a lovely woman's mouth, to look at a well-dressed woman, I am proud that I struggle to work hard against many, many things.
0: She tells the daughters of her wariness of masculine lesbians.
3: Someday, I expect the discreet lesbian will not turn her head on the streets at the sight of a butch strolling hand-in-hand with her friend in their trousers and definitive haircuts. But for the moment, it still disturbs.
0: Phyllis is so excited for the support from this up-and-coming playwright that she prints the entire four-page letter in the latter under Lorraine's initials.
3: Women, like other oppressed groups of one kind or another, have particularly had to pay a price for the intellectual impoverishment that the second-class status imposed on us for centuries created and sustained. Thus, I feel the latter is a fine elementary step in a rewarding direction. L. H. N., New York, New York.
0: The playwright stays in touch for years.
3: Just a little afterthought, considering Madashine, believe this one all seem to be cropping up on the west coast rather than here where vigorous and active gay set almost bump one another off the streets. What is it in the air out there? Pioneer still, or tougher circumstance which inspires battle? We'll love to hear speculation, lighthearted or otherwise.
0: The Daughters' diligent work brings their readers lively conversation and desire for organizing across the country. It's coming, New York. And the Daughters' contact with prominent authors is professional and financially supportive of their goals. In the Mattachine, theirs leads to scandal. Bickering continues over the purrier affairs. Tony and Joe lead New York's group, as Tony writes to young Ron Argall, leading the L.A. chapter. But Ron looks up to Hal. Tony relentlessly whispers in Ron's ear, but Ron can't hear over Hal Call. Hal continues to dominate the National Mattachine Society with the magazine, working tirelessly as his longtime lover Jack continues showing up, buzzing his apartment to be taken back, only to turn on Hal in violent outbursts again. Jack demands Hal's attention, but Hal is already burning the candle at both ends until finally quitting his full-time insurance job to run Pan Graphic Press for Mattachine and his other printing ventures. All his time is spent out of the apartment. He goes to the office, nods hello to the gray-haired trans woman who's been operating the cage elevator for years, and he heads into the Pan Graphic and Mattachine offices on the third floor. He's handling the legal briefs for the Black Cat's case and over 500 subscriptions to the Mattachine Review. Hal can't stop working because he wants, and hoped for, over 5,000 subscribers. And now, without a day job, he says he's only taking home $45 from Pangraphic Press. Mattachine owes him a debt. In order to bring in more cash, Hal and his Mattachine partner Don Lucas launched the Dorian Book Service, which sells homosexual books via mail all over the country, like Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Pangraphic Press poises to publish their first original book, too, Gay Bar, by Helen P. Branson, the tough bar owner in Los Angeles, from the first episode this season. Helen lays the final manuscript for her book about her bar on Hal's desk.
2: You won't find any statements in parentheses in my book. I typed this myself on a Polish model typewriter. It had no parentheses marks on the keyboard. So, I made all of my statements direct, just as if I were talking to you. Hal
0: prints 1,600 copies at $3 each but that won't take care of his need to make a living. He promotes the book presales through the Mattachine Review. Hal then insists to the Mattachine board that if they want the survival of their organization's magazine, their one tool to promote their organization, Mattachine will need to repay its debt to Pan Graphic Press so Hal can make a living wage. He's drowning in work. Jack is left in the dust. Hal's interest in men leans more toward physical satisfaction than emotional. His Mattachine work consumes him. Relatable. As he finishes each issue of the review, Hal hands them off to their attorney for consultation, Kenneth Swearin. Kenneth Swearin, the lawyer who filed the incorporation papers for the daughters and said they were so discreet that they could have been a society for raising cats, he's closeted. But he helps homosexuals arrested by vice police or blackmailed with their sexuality. Zwerin takes case referrals from phone calls that come into the Mattachine Society offices and in return, he consults on the Mattachine Review. And of course, he and Hal Call are drawn to each other in the Mattachine offices.
2: A dominating spirit ten times more than I. A sexual fondness involved that I'm not ashamed to say at all.
0: Zwerin is an attractive and brilliant ally for Hal to have in San Francisco. So Hal sends Zwerin off to New York on a trip to consult their Mattachine offices. Zwerin meets their remaining leaders, Tony and Joe. Joe is handsome, the lawyer notices. After addressing their chapter, Zwerin, Hal's ally, goes to Joe. They go home together. That night, Zwerin tells Joe everything. The Mattachine Review brings in a gross profit of $4,000. Less than a third of that goes back into the actual Mattachine Society. Profits are being kept by Hal Call's pan-graphic press. The Mattachine's own publication chairman, small business is bleeding the organization out and now house demanding payment on top of it from the society's board. Zwerin does not sabotage New York, but confirms the suspicions of the New York chapter and climbs his ladder of chaos to the top of the Mattachine Society. A moment ago I mentioned Stella Rush falling in love as she formed the LA Belitis chapter with Helen Sandoz. You can listen to it right now on my bonus podcast Forgotten Fairy Tales, available on my patreon patreon.com/queer serial. In my newest episode, you can hear the real Hal call say
1: We've also discovered that this bugaboo of fear is one of the biggest things we have to contend with. We get many many letters from all parts of the United States, from people in all walks of life, from people in the armed forces." From people of all ages who have maybe either just discovered they are homosexual or they have known it for a long time and uh, want some kind of help. Many of them are afraid. Are they afraid to? They're afraid to have their name on a mailing list. They think that that some authorities are going to seize it.
0: Subscribe to the bonus show at patreon.com slash queer serial for just $3 a month. Other rewards include buttons, transcripts of episodes, photos through the research process, more old gay music, and a pretty gorgeous mug with the podcast artwork. Also, you can get a copy of Helen Branson's book, Gay Bar, reprinted just a few years ago and generously donated to the podcast by Will Fellows. Read Helen's entire story about her secret little gay bar on Melrose. I only have a few copies left. Patreon.com slash Queer Serial. Click the link in the episode notes.
3: I have been receiving the Ladder and have been a member of the Daughters of Belitis for more than a year now. The day my copy arrives, I sit and read it from cover to cover. If only there was a chapter here in New York or New Jersey, I would be the first to join. GM from Orange, New Jersey. Like many another Ladder reader, I am always thoroughly delighted with your magazine and all too seldom write to tell you so. I wish I were blessed with financial means, talented with writing ability, or in some way or another qualified to make more of a contribution to DOB than I can. But as I am not, I join the ranks of those quiet fellows who find you a light in the dark night and a warm fire for alien souls, CH Pasadena, California.
0: During these years, the mid to late 50s, the daughters of Belitas thrive. There's not much scandal to report. They witness plenty of it, though, as many San Franciscan daughters arrive at the 4th Annual Mattachine Convention. Arranged by attorney Kenneth Zwerin to be held at the Hotel Sheridan Palace, Mattachine President Don Lucas welcomes everyone and congratulates them on their many accomplishments since, well, since they stole the Mattachine from the communists. Don Lucas also announces the completion of Chicago attorney Pearl Hart's pamphlet called Your Legal Rights, educating individuals on their rights if they are arrested and listing criminal offenses typically used against homosexuals. Her Chicago Mattachine chapter distributes them through the mail for 25 cents. And then President Don Lucas announces a very different attorney, Kenneth Swearen.
2: Throw away that brochure on homosexual rights in the law
0: he unfolds the pamphlet.
2: After arrest, what? Stand up for your rights at your own risk. Most police have more respect for their billy clubs than for citizens' rights.
0: Later that night, receptions are hosted by Pangraphic Press and the Daughters of Belitis. Zwerin toasts to the member of the year, New York's Tony Segura. The following day, Labor Day 1957, the annual business meeting holds the election of new chairman nationally, the call for the presidential nominations is held. Hal Call, shocked, runs across the convention to the incumbent, Don Lucas. Kenneth Swearin is on the ballot. Don Lucas knew it was coming. The votes are tallied, and the new president takes the stage. Hal Call is astonished to watch the organization he once stole now stolen from him by his former lover and attorney. As Hal gives his publications report, delegates speak up to accuse him of profiting off his position as publications chairman.
2: First of all, I resent the implication that I would quote as minimum average commercial prices for comparable quality, which were not just that. These figures will stand up, as I'm sure you will learn. Pangraphic was set up as a commercial publishing and lithographic firm, primarily for the purpose of printing the Mattachine Review at the lowest possible cost. It hasn't charged the magazine for labor.
0: But combing through the books, historians like James Sears have found that Pan Graphic did charge the Mattachine for overhead and administration editing. When he launched the review two years ago, Hal recorded a commercial printer's quote to make the magazine at $266 for 3,000 copies of the first issue, including envelopes and labor for mailing. Call launched Pan Graphic, printed the issue, and invoiced the Mattachine Society for $600, not including postage. Hal wrote at the time,
2: This is less than one half of what it would have cost to have done commercially.
0: No individual has profited one cent. The delegates here at this convention don't even know these facts, but they're suspicious of the society falling into Pangraphic's debt, as subscription rates are rising and Hal is demanding more money. The new leadership, most of whom are from other cities, are fed up with the San Francisco centricity of the magazine anyway. Turning on his former lover, President Zwerin demands Hal not even open the Mattachine Society's mail anymore. The board votes for a new commercial printer to take the magazine. The next issue is to be published by the New York chapter, not by Hal. Bob Eastlick is given authority to investigate wrongdoings against their constitution, possibly committed by Hal Call. The convention is called. The Mattachine Society leaders gather in the library lounge with their new president for a group photo, just below a small poster of their court jester logo. East Lick's investigation gathers dirt quickly. The disorganization of the San Francisco Area Council and abandonment of social programming for homosexuals leads him to propose demoting San Francisco to chapter status.
2: Publicly, Hal Call says, I have no objection to anything that is taking place in the San Francisco area. Privately,
0: Hal furiously writes missives to friends.
2: I am not about to let New York jerk the rug out from under us.
0: Don Lucas, Hal's matachine partner in San Francisco, writes to Joe in New York.
2: If I see that the results of this investigation into Hal are not going to be sufficient, then I am definitely planning on flying to New York to talk to you in person. I cannot say what I have to say in writing. It is very unfortunate that
0: 90% of our efforts are at the present time directed at solving internal conflicts. New York leadership entertains ideas of the society absorbing Hal's pan-graphic press, Hal sits back and waits for them to figure it out on their own. The new Mattachine review issue, in the hands of New York, is weeks behind schedule. Hal answers questions from the new printer, but it doesn't hit the post until 25 days after deadline. The printer tells Hal, I'll tell you how to get the review
2: back. Take the damn thing. I don't want it.
0: New York realizes they don't have the expertise that Hal has. If they buy Pan Graphic, they don't have their publisher or the funds to produce the magazine. And Pan Graphic needs their review just as mutually in order to make money. As he waits for the Mattachine's decision, Hal proceeds in publishing Helen Branson's book, Gay Bar, with Pan Graphic Press. Three months behind schedule, Hal sends Helen her first copy, writing on the inside cover.
2: To my favorite author and my favorite Gay Bar, your first is our first also. Here's hoping we can both create a second as successful as this one looks right now.
0: He will later describe the powerful bar owner as A king without a penis. The reviews in the homophile press, One Magazine, The latter, and The Mattachine Review, are great. Warner Brothers even reaches out to Helen for a copy to consider optioning gay bar. A king, indeed. Homophile book services sell out of it fast. PanGraphic printed 1,600 copies, despite a contractual agreement to print 2,500. And within a month, Pan Graphic has only 300 copies left to sell. Within a year, those sell out too. With a grant and 15% royalties withheld from the author, Pangraphic will surely make a profit. Helen's royalties, which add up to $572.40, more than $4,600 today, are not paid by Hal Call to Helen Branson. Her only profits for writing this book come from copies she sells herself in her small gay bar of regular customers. Hal never gave his king her royalties. Hal continues his side projects as word still has not come down from the new Mattachine president. He prints the new issue of Interim, the members-only Mattachine quarterly that almost had per year's obituary. Reporting on the recent convention, the group photograph of Mattachine leaders in the library lounge is pasted, plated, folded, stapled, trimmed, slipped into envelopes, sealed, and addressed to all members. The names of those leaders printed below the photograph. It's the first time an American homophile organization has ever printed a photo of their leadership. All over the country, members open their new interim issue to see something revolutionary. Kenneth Swearin, the closeted attorney and the new president of the Mattachine Society and all-out drama queen, goes through the roof. Just about everyone in the photo does. Their faces are now public. A San Francisco Mattachine member shows up at Don Lucas's office. He says he was recently in trouble with the police and went to a lawyer for help. He told the lawyer everything he had done. The lawyer then told the young man to pay up. A hefty fine, too, because he had just recorded this entire conversation. If the young man doesn't pay up, the lawyer is going to use the confessions against him in court. It's illegal, but it's what many lawyers do to gay clients. Don Lucas isn't surprised. He asks the young man the attorney's name. Don Lucas storms out of the Mattachine offices and marches down Market Street, barging into Kenneth Zwerin's second-floor office. He grabs the flower arrangement from Zwerin's desk and rips the microphone cord from it. This
2: is the cause of Get the hell out of my office! This is the
0: cause of Get
2: the hell out of my office!
0: Zwerin, irate, pushes Don out of his office. President Zwerin's resignation is quick to follow. Though he insists he never gave written permission for the use of his photograph in interim, He agrees to hold off on a lawsuit against Mattachine. As the House of Cards flutters back down into his hands, Hal Call has one last move to play. Jim Kepner, the reporter in Los Angeles, writes to Joe in Mattachine, New York, to confirm a report. Of such a disturbing significance to the entire homophile movement. For his news column in one magazine. Unless we hear from you further, we will consider this news authentic. Joe confirms the news to be true, and Kepner's piece goes to print. One magazine is informed by Joe McCarthy, New York City chairman of the board, Mattachine Society, that it has been compelled to accept the resignation of Hal Call, San Francisco, as editor of the Mattachine Review, publications director, and as a member of the society, due to threats made against various members of the society by Kenneth Zwerin, San Francisco attorney, formerly a member of the society and its president. Next week on episode six, Faces Behind the Names. Mattachine continued to refer clients to Kenneth Zwerin until 1960. Maybe that's due to the lack of attorneys taking gay cases, I'm not sure. But it all ended when Hal referred two 19-year-olds arrested on lewd vagrancy charges to Kenneth, and then Zwerin demanded $500 in cash to represent them. Another lawyer, they asked, requested only $100. Hal Call said Ken, quote, flared up, demanded $250 for his trouble on the case to that point, and stated that if they didn't come up with the $250 for the case, he would play a recording in court, which he taped in his office of the initial conversation with these clients. End quote. Truly a monster. Want some more queer history? Check out my bonus podcast, Forgotten Fairy Tales. You can subscribe only at patreon.com slash serial. The show is full of standalone stories, deep dives into stories that didn't make the cut, characters from Queer Serial's main storyline off on their own journeys, and discussions between me and some of the real activists from the movement. This week's episode features a real recording of Hal Call on the San Francisco radio station in 1958.
1: I know there's also a tendency in uh, some of the groups working on the problem today To point out that the homosexual is possibly, on the average, more gifted than uh, is the non-homosexual or heterosexual person.
0: Subscribe now at Patreon.com slash Queer Serial. Click the link in the episode notes. Patrons also get other fun rewards like buttons, mugs, photos through the research process, and transcripts of the episodes. If you're a teacher looking for transcripts, please contact me on QueerSerial.com. A huge thank you to some of my top donors who waited very patiently for season two, including Faye and Steve Camp, my wonderful grandparents whose voices are all over this show, and also the fabulous filmmaker and friend of mine, David Weissman. Click the link in the episode notes to see Weissman's many documentaries on queer history covering the psychedelic drag group the Coquettes and the AIDS epidemic and conversations with gay elders. You can also hear us chat on my bonus podcast. Thank you all for your incredibly helpful donations. This season is also brought to you in part by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence San Francisco. Resources for the podcast can be found at QueerSerial.com. One in particular used for this episode is, of course, James Sears' fabulously detailed book, Behind the Mask of the Mattachine. This book covers so much inside Mattachine drama, especially the per-year affairs and the interim photo scandal. For more visuals and stories that didn't make the cut, check out the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Serial. I recently posted photos of Helen Branson's book, Gay Bar, among many other authors featured in today's episode. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps new people find the show. And share the show with your friends and family. Doesn't matter if they're queer, they'll love it. Maybe. I don't know. Voice actors. The James Baldwin quote was read by the gorgeous Samuel Miles. Albert Ross Perrier by Tim O'Reilly. Hal Call by Dominic Caruso. James Barr by Matt Baum. Once again, please check out Matt Baume's many queer projects, including The Sewers of Paris, in which he interviews queer people about the entertainment that changed their life. Links are down in the episode notes. Phyllis Lyon was played by Jane Serenska.
3: Now there is only Phyllis Lyon. Oh my god. She's so cool. I love her. Okay.
0: <clears throat> Del Martin by Salvio Gatto, Informant by Evan Camp, Lorraine Hansberry by my incredible cousin, Zoya Barker, Helen Branson by my beautiful, perfect, sweetheart of a grandmother, Faye Camp.
2: So I made all of my comments direct, just as if I were talking to you. Strike that.
0: Lesbians 1 and 2 were voiced by Marissa Barbara Clayton and Lucy Jones. Don Lucas by Jacob Wallace. Joe by Matthew Ellenwood. Printer by John Roth. Jim Kepner by Gage Kyle. And the wicked Kenneth Swearin, voiced by, you know him, you love him, the fabulous Sam Pancake. I remember watching Sam play a very gay waiter on Friends when I was very young. And I remember thinking, oh, gay people can be funny. A massive thank you to all the actors, friends, and family for donating your time and talent to this show. Music is by Kevin MacLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. The original Mattachine Society jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. See you next week.
3: Just a little afterthought, considering Madagine I forgot how to say.